Hi guys, welcome to the Code Life podcast with me, Nathan Blackaby, and my great mate, Carl Beach, who is not with me today. Now, if you are joining me on the uh, YouTube, uh, the video of the podcast, you would have already seen that we are not at the Hub office. We are in my office. Uh, I've got a personal space. <laughs> I've got a uh, purpose-built uh, office in the back garden. Uh, accomplished this year, actually. Built myself with a great friend of mine called Jim. Uh, and we built this awesome studio stroke office. So I'm here on my own today. Um, the reasons for that are we've had a massive busy summer. Uh, obviously with a couple of festivals, the Gathering being one of those, uh, Edge Fest is another. Uh, I know Carl has been down at Creation Fest and loads of other stuff. It has been busy. Um, Beach is having a well-earned break on holiday. Um, and we just weren't able to find dates that matched. It's one of these things that we try and do in the background uh, is get together regularly to record these podcasts for you guys. And sometimes we just struggle with dates and it's, yeah, this time of year for us is pretty crazy. Uh, and it kind of has all come to an end and we're just having a break and we're recovering from it all. So, yeah, you've got me. You've got me today. So you might have already turned off <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. Uh, sorry, I've got emails coming in as well. So here we are. We're in my, my studio at home. Um, and I thought we would do a Code Life podcast together. Now, one of the things I thought we would talk about is this book here that came out, it came out like maybe 15 years ago. Uh, it is Why Men Hate Going to Church by David Murrow. You might have um, seen this book before. Um, it, it kind of became staple reading around the issue of uh, the decline of men in church. Uh, and what some of those factors are, why it's happening. Um, some of it, I, I mean, there, ha there have been criticisms about this book and you don't have to search too far to find those. Um, but I do still think there is some really cracking advice in these books. Uh, I say these books because I've also got here the updated version. Uh, again, Why Men Hate Going to Church, completely revised and updated. Uh, so that's a good thing. Now, this came out 2011. So that is still pretty out of date, you know. We're looking at eight years on and stuff changes. So here's another book, Seven Reasons Your Church Needs More Men. Uh, that came out last year. Um, so there are some cracking stats and thinking that's gone on in here. Uh, it's something that I've been part of with Annabelle and a team of amazing people have come together and put this book together. And it's basically looking at how to lead a gender-balanced church supporting healthy singleness, dating, marriage, and youth. So <clears throat> what I thought we could do just in 15, 20 minutes in this podcast is ask some questions about why guys struggle in church, why we're seeing a, a church that isn't gender-balanced. Now, I realise that when you start this sort of debate or this conversation, uh, it can quickly put me... On relatively thin ice because when we talk about men in church if we talk about things like uh, masculinity uh, often there can be an argument and approach here that it's toxic masculinity uh, and I disagree with that I don't think all masculinity is toxic uh, I think it's part of who men are 
And uh, I don't want to explore that too much, but just as kind of a, a foundation to that, um, I don't think masculinity is inherently a bad thing. Um, and I think a lot of guys are on a real discovery of what their masculinity is. Um, and yes, there are traditional forms of masculinity, etc., etc. But I think when we're talking about this issue of men in church, we have to be careful with this stuff. So I'm just flagging it up now because I know a lot of people get very upset and angry about this stuff. Um, and that's okay. You know, uh, the reality is when you say things in public, when you put stuff out in the public domain, there will always be people who disagree, who don't like what you say, and will tell you that and tell others that. And that's absolutely fine. We deal with it every day. I've got no problem with that. That's just the way it is. Um, but I do shy away from terms that are in the book of word in the culture that drives church at the moment as a feminine culture, particularly in the older, older version of the book. Uh, it is also in the new version as well, but I tend to go for a more uh, wording around romanticised culture. And, and that's fine too. Others will prefer a term of feminised culture, but I know from speaking to a lot of women and my own daughters uh, and wife, that it can be a little bit negative to apply the word feminine to a culture that we don't really like in church, that, that we're wrestling with and saying it's something we, we see that men are struggling with, and it can create some negative connotations. So I, I kind of steer towards the term romanticised, but there you go. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, yeah, the video's running, that's fine. Why men hate going to church. I want to read some of this stuff to you. Uh, this is from the revised edition of the book. Men who needs them is uh, chapter three. Church involvement is good for men. But since when do men do what's good for them? Men regard church going like a prostrate exam. It's something that can save their lives, but it's so unpleasant and invasive <laughs> they put it off. Others see the worship service as their weekly dose of religion a bitter elixir they must swallow to remain healthy, but not something to look forward to. And, you know, I think there can be a little bit, of quite a lot of truth there, if we're honest. And and let me just say this, a lot of this stuff isn't, isn't male exclusive only. I know a lot of women who are in church saying, you know what, this is terrible. And they're struggling. Now, I'm not painting a negative picture of church. I'm just trying to say that this isn't only... A male issue there are lots of women in church who are saying very similar things but we're focusing on a gender imbalance where there isn't the same amount of men in church okay so this is what we're kind of digging into and also the reason we're looking at this is because of this book and the impacts of not having the same amount of men in church today and that's why it's significant that's why we're looking at it because Christian marriage is not possible for women, Christian women at the moment, because there's not enough Christian men. Anyway, moving on. So men avoid church and suffer for it. Men are like more likely than women. Now this is interesting. Men are more likely than women to be arrested, die violently, commit and be victims of crimes, go to jail and be addicted. They also die more often on the job have more heart attacks, commit suicide in greater numbers and live shorter lives than women. I could go on. Interestingly, a mate of mine who works in the police force, who has a role that I would never want, and it's, it's a unit that are devised to capture paedophiles. 
And I said to him, what percentage of these paedophiles are women? And he said, there, there isn't. They're men. We just, we don't come across them. They're men. So men, predominantly, I'd say exclusively, here in the UK anyway, are leading the way in paedophilia, which is just shocking. If men want to avoid these pathologies, they should go to church, says David Morrow. Studies indicated that churchgoers are more likely to be married and express a higher level of satisfaction with life. Church involvement is the most important predictor of marital stability and happiness. It moves people out of poverty. It's also correlated with less depression, more self-esteem, greater family and marital happiness. Religious participation leads men to become more engaged husbands and fathers. Teens with religious fathers are more likely to say that they enjoy spending time with their dads and that they admire them. Obviously men need the church, but does the church need men? Not really, says David Morrow. So there are benefits, obviously, to getting guys into church and getting involved in church. I thought it was quite interesting here. He pulls out some other stuff. He says, men bring a risk orientation. Men bring a risk orientation. Men are hardwired for risk taking, particularly young men. The number one killer of 15 to 24 year old males is accidents. Female investors hold less, less risky investment portfolios than their male counterparts and generally take fewer chances with their money. Now, there are always going to be cases where that's not true. There, but what we're trying to say here, or what this book is trying to say here, is that predominantly, okay, predominantly, because I, I look at one of my daughters, Annie, and she is an absolute risk taker. I mean, she is full on absolutely crazy. But what we're saying here is it's not those one or two unique situations. It is generally predominantly what the stats are showing is that men are more wired for risk in the way they live out their lives. Churches need men because men are natural risk takers and they bring that orientation into the church. Congregations that do not take risks atrophy. Jesus made it clear that risk taking is necessary to please God. Interesting. Parable of talents. The master praises the two servants who risked their assets and produce more. That's interesting. Also, he goes on to say, men exalt the rules, men impart strength. I mean, these are just some headlines here. Men bring money, men attract women. And he, he basically starts to paint this picture of the need for men in church and why they're missing. Who are the missing men? Well, we know some of this from stats. Young single men are missing. Highly masculine men are missing. Uh, and, and this is an interesting point because it's one of the things that really bothers me when we talk about highly masculine men. Uh, I wouldn't class myself as, as a highly masculine man. I mean, if, if we're defining masculinity here for a minute, if we're saying, okay, what would that mean? Is it the guys who are wired for adrenaline? Is it the guys who default to this kind of alpha male dominant is that what we're saying as highly masculine? These guys who who really do kind of go for it and they're massively driven, they're massively about success, they're, they're, they're these dominant kind of guys. 
I wouldn't say I'm that sort of masculine guy. There are elements to my character that are like that. There are moments in my life that I can see that pattern in my masculinity, but equally so, I can see another side of my masculinity that is tender, that is caring, that is gentle, that does um, resonate with the, this kind of caring, shepherding, gentle nature in, in my heart. Uh, and, and very much expressed through music, creativity. I mean, you can't see here, or maybe you can, like I've got my music set up, I do loads of music production, and I absolutely love that side of things. Poetry, art, you know, not perhaps not, perhaps not traditionally assigned to this kind of masculinity, but there's a blend, there's a mixture of the two. But what it's saying here is, church struggles to attract highly masculine men. talks about decisions that are made the feminine way now this is where i think we need to be careful it says here being a church leader is frustrating experience because a man cannot lead like a man instead he must be careful sentimental and thrifty make every decision by census consensus talk everything to death decisions take months or years to make and if someone's feelings might be hurt we don't move forward now let's be careful here because david morrow is saying this is the feminine way okay now, I think that language immediately upsets people when we say that actually the church really struggles to make decisions, to talk everything to death. It goes for a consensus. Everyone has their feelings met. If someone's feelings are hurt, then nothing happens and we, and we go around in a circle. If we say that's a feminine way of doing things, I think we, we are at risk of offending people and not actually going anywhere with the debate. Okay, But that doesn't take away from the fact that that is actually quite a true summary of how it works in church. So let's take away the fact that he said this is a feminine way. Let's just say it's a way in which things happen. Then I think we can at least say, yeah, you know what? There's some truth in that. Because I've been in loads of churches where a decision goes round and round and round. And one person will say, I've taken offence to that. And it kind of starts the whole process again. Because we don't want anyone's feelings to get hurt. We're a church, we're a loving community, and no decisions get made. Nothing happens. Like the policy doesn't get seen through, or the consensus kind of kills it. And actually, sometimes, and I've seen this more and more recently, when a leader is able to say, Hey guys, thank you so much for all your input. This is where we're going to go. I feel conviction here and we're steering it this way. And I'm asking you to trust me and get behind me. I've sought the Lord here. I've inquired of the Lord here. I've listened to every argument and some will take offence to this decision. I get that. Others will agree with it. But trust me, I'm here to lead. Let's do it. And you move forward. Now, I think, I think there's truth in that. I think there's some real interesting truths in here. But I think a lot of this stuff gets shut in a box because Morrow assigns it to a feminine culture and he in, immediately in our in our current society that is a no-no that is seen as a massive no-no so the actual things he's talking about are invalidated because he's assigned to a female culture that's what I think I think that's what's happening because I actually think he's coming up some really interesting stuff I want to read um something else to you here about some of the ways in which we've got ourselves in this place this is quite interesting uh, so I'm in chapter 7 Victoria's Secret Secret. when we lost the men so the Victorian era is what he's talking about not the uh, 
raunchy underwear shop. Not that I know what that is. Never been there. Friend told me. Uh, moving on. Most people assume Christianity's gender gap is something new. Back in the old days, men used to be more religious, right? Wrong, says Morrow. Men have been underrepresented in the church for at least 700 years, according to Dr. Leon Poodles, a Catholic scholar of religion, author of the book, The Church Impotent, The Feminization of Christianity. Men began to withdraw from church life during the 13th century. Catholicism shifted its adoration from a male deity, Jesus the Christ, to a female one, the Virgin Mary. A doctrine of weakness and dependency replaced the church's historic emphasis on struggle and self-sacrifice. As the ranks of priests grew, clergymen assumed the role of practitioners of the faith, while laymen became utterly passive, unable even to feed themselves the Lord's Supper. That's, that's really quite profound. Do you not think? Remember what we're talking about here. A, a church that is not gender balanced in the UK. We are struggling to reach men. And we've got an utterly passive message coming through. The Protestant Reformation captured the hearts of men for a while. Religious men settled the new world. But their unction did not always guarantee their presence in the pews. New England churches whose... Rolls go back to the 1600s, show the majority of their numbers were always women. During the Victorian era, Christianity's relatively small gender gap became a yawning chasm. Economic and so so societal changes rocked Western society. Definitions of manhood and religion changed in tandem, and men began leaving the church in mass. Women remained. This is significant stuff, because this isn't a, this isn't a contemporary issue. We haven't just like, oh, it's two thousand and nineteen, and suddenly the church is missing men. Do you see what I'm saying? Before eighteen hundred, back to the book in the Western world, it was simply assumed that every respectable man was some form of Christian. Well, ed- well educated men went to church. Religion, government, and higher education formed a triad that maintained the civil order. But during the 19th century, male intellectuals began publicly rejecting religion as superstition or myth. Atheists came out of the closet and admitted they did not believe in God. A new term was coined to describe those who believed in God's existence, but not his involvement in human affairs, agnostics. Many of the West's great universities, founded as religious institutions, secularised during this period religion morphed from a public civic identity into a personal private choice okay so we've got these massive changes uh victorian let's just jump ahead a bit victorian ministers learned that an angry god did not connect with audiences that ran up to 75 percent female so they realized that their theology the way they were teaching theology or the bible and a God that was angry didn't resonate with their 75% female congregations. So they replaced him with the Lamb of God, a warm, comforting deity who matched the sensibilities of the predominantly female congregation. Jesus, lover of my soul, was a perfect companion and protector 
for women whose husbands had little time for them. This softening of God has been going on for about 200 years and shows no signs of stopping. During the late 1800s, Victorians began decorating their sanctuaries according to a domestic motif, rejecting the austere, mirthless facilities of their Puritan forebearers. Victorians brought carpets, draperies, padded chairs, flower arrangements, quilts, ribbons into the church. Stained glass made a comeback, restoring a burst of colour to the worship space. Now, it's important, I think it's important to say here that we are acknowledging, and often in this debate about why there's not enough men in church, and and predominantly the church is led by men today, and, and people always point fingers and say, well, it's led by men, there should be more men in church. Okay. But actually, we're looking at the history here. We're looking at why we're in this place. And men had pulled away from church. Men had started to drift away from church. So women started to shape the church around their understanding of God, what they were being taught about God, the message. And with that came a culture of decoration, of, of expression of Christianity. And, and that expression has adorned the church for decades ribbons uh tapestries banners floral you know my the church i've been part of growing up the floral rotor the flowers rotor was something so serious i remember my mum on loads of occasions saturday night being like i haven't done the flowers for tomorrow and she'd rush off to church like at midnight and be doing flower arrangements i mean it was a big deal the flowers were a big deal so we've got this we've got this kind of platform this foundation this is what we're working with 19th century revivals introduced emotionalism to the church. Emotionalism. Weekly services remained sober affairs, but tent revivals provided an outlet for exuberance in worship. So you can see this stuff taking place. Um, I also want to read a little bit more here. Um, This is interesting. So this is something, uh, uh, the subtitle here is Softening of Male Clergy. Now, oh, this is something that comes up in the book, the new book in 2018, that is based on stats that have been found out, processed, analysed, that this is actually true, that there is a softening of male clergy, that male clergy demonstrate, if we can use this term, more feminine characteristics so when there are less high masculine men in church churches are being run more and more by male clergy and leadership that aren't particularly wired for the traditional forms of masculinity okay just as tall men have an advantage in the game of basketball back to the book gentle and sensitive men suddenly had an advantage in the pastorate. In the 1800s, seminaries began to fill up with less than manly men, precisely because of their softness made them so lovable to the matrons who held the levers of power within the church. Interesting. And Douglas writes, it seems highly likely that in a period when religion was more and more the province of women, Many of the young men drawn to the church were seen to be deeply attached 
and even similar to the women they knew best, namely their mothers. During the Victorian era, men and women were consigned to strict gender roles, but pastors were something in between, a special class of men who were allowed to exercise feminine gifts. Pastors moved in feminine circles, preaching to women, counselling women, drinking tea and eating cakes with women. The sallow, sickly pastor was a common character in literature of the day. One turn of the century writer lamented. One turn of the century writer lamented. Too often sissy fellows have paraded themselves as representatives of Christianity's crowning work and characterization, while the men of full blood and ambition have quietly dropped out from such company. Now, again, let me say, phrases like man up in today's culture have become like a trending hashtag where we say, to say man up in a situation is like the unforgivable sin. And actually here, what is being suggested is there was a process where men found themselves reflecting the the culture of women around them and the, the characteristics of women around them. And these were men in leadership of the church. Now, I, I'm not saying that I use the term man up and this phrase, but there is part here, I think, that we need a revival of men in church, particularly church leaders, who are unafraid to to let their masculinity be part of how they lead. I think that's true. Uh, now, ma saying man up isn't like, um, oh, you're going through a really tough time. Man up, just don't talk about it. Stiff up a lip, mate. Don't cry. You know, that's a definition of man up that I do not agree with or support or perpetuate in any way. But what I am saying is, I think there needs to be a call on men in church to spiritually man up, to spiritually say, you know what, this is who I am, uh, this is the kind of guy I am, I do like burning stuff, I do like a beer, I do like hanging out with the boys, that doesn't make me, it doesn't disqualify me from masculinity because I, I associate with traditional forms of masculinity, actually it validates me as well to be a leader, to be a man of God, to be someone who stands up and speaks and and as a voice. Uh, and I think we've gone on a bit of a witch hunt of traditional forms of masculinity, actually. I, I think that's something our culture and our time needs to call out, that men who do like that stuff, who are that way inclined, who are your high masculinity guys, I think keep very much out of this debate because it's, a, it's seen as a, a, an approach that isn't understood and liked. But there you go. I think it's essential and it, it's who part of who we are. Um, so there has been a softening of male clergy and I think we can still see this today. I've been through Bible college, uh, got a degree at Bible college and then pushed through for a master's at Spurgeon's, just failed it right at the end there, but we don't talk about that. Uh, but what I did see is a softening of male leaders that come through and they are a particular type of guy who... In my experience of having friends who aren't Christians and very worldly guys who work on the building sites, or they would really struggle to connect with. 
because their life experience, their attitudes, the things they like, the things they do, the things they read, do not equate and do not speak into this kind of masculine arena where, where men are. So it was interesting to see that, that there, there certainly is a softening of male clergy. And we, we look for it in our Bible college. We, this is something that's come up before in conversation. Uh, it is that shepherd uh, warrior mentality. We praise and value the shepherd in men, but we shy away from the man who talks about a fight, a punch up, who shows tendencies for being driven focused wants to see stuff done he's a loud voice in the church and someone who who wants to see change and actually doesn't worry too much if people get upset because of change and we don't like that we don't like that characteristic in men but it's equally as valid as the guy who shows all the caring compassionate qualities we've got to have a mixture of the two we've got to have a blend and we've got to celebrate both that's what i think i don't care if you don't agree with me uh, um, anyway let me let me just bring this to a close because i'm waffling on it's been half hour think of the local church as a ship back to the book the captain is likely to be male but his officers and crew will be primarily female so if the skipper wants the ship to run smoothly he must be able to please and motivate women clergymen learn early in their careers that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I need to get that in a different accent. Let me try that again. <laughs> if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's better. Should the captain run afoul of certain powerful women, he'll have a mutiny on his hands. The ministry engines will splatter and die. So pastors work overtime to make women feel loved and needed. Of course, this brings more women into the church and the circle is complete. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it's a powerful argument. Let me bring this to some kind of conclusion summary. Uh, I want to offer some suggestions that might help. That um, might help get the men back into church. Now, in the book, I'm going to read some stuff to you just in, in conclusion and add a few thoughts. Um you can buy this book. You can obviously buy this one, but you can buy uh, Why Men Hate Going to Church. But you can also buy Seven Reasons Your Church Needs More Men uh, from Amazon. Do check that out because in this book, we look at some really, really interesting things. We look at a, a biblical foundation for marriage based on the theological understandings. Uh, we look at the current trends of the gender imbalance in church. We ask why it's happening, what is happening. Um, and then we look at the impacts of singleness, dating, relationships, marriage, parenting, discipleship, youth work, and the impact of having less men in our churches and how all of these areas are impacted. So it's actually a massive, massive issue. And in each of these areas, we asked a load of people in their uh, experts in their field, OK, if it was working well, what would it look like and how on earth do we get there? So this is a really, really valuable book. Um, and there are some amazing things said in here by people a lot smarter than me. For example, uh, Adrian Chatfield, he says about the church that a crisis in marriage is a crisis for the whole of society. And we are already reaping the fruit of that far beyond the family and the home. Now, this, is, this is important. When the church is almost as confused as the wider society about the nature and function of marriage 
It loses its prophetic edge and part of its ability to witness to the nature and mission of God. So when I say man up, I'm actually saying church man up. Not suppress your emotions and hide and, and stiff up a lip job, but let's actually say, okay, this is happening. How do we understand marriage? How do we define marriage? And let's stick our hand in here, stick our head above the parapet and say, hey, this is our biblical understanding here. We're holding to it. What will that look like? Scary. That's what it looks like. But here's an interesting thing that Harry Benson pulled out. A report published in 2017, so only two years ago, Social Trends Institute, who's a US think tank, they found that Britain has the highest rate of family instability in the entire developed world. Britain has the highest rate of family instability in the entire developed world. Three out of five children born to unmarried parents experience family breakdown before they reach their teenage years. There you go. So this is this is big stuff. Anyway, what do we do? How do we how do we kind of break some of these cycles and these trends? Well, I think there's loads of stuff we can do. And CVM, we've got loads of conversations about this that we can have with you. We can talk to you about and we love working with a local church to see men get saved and the gender balance change but here's something morrow says when a man sees enthusiastic men in leadership he is likely to believe there is a place for him in church women also appreciate animated male leaders because they are such a rarity in modern society when a man sees an animated enthusiastic enthusiastic passionate man with integrity, standing up and saying, I'm following Jesus and this is why, they love it. Men love it. There are too many sermons, says Morrow, about relationships and not enough about mission. Men want to hear about mission, focus, where we're going, what we're trying to do. Here's a truth about men that will either thrill you or terrify you. Men don't follow religions. Men don't follow philosophies. Men don't follow ideas. Men follow men. What do you think of that? Eh? Men follow men. Was it Jesus's teaching? Was it his miracles? I think it was a lot of that stuff. You know, I'm just trying to think, if I was Peter, James, Matthew, what would it have been? Why would I follow Jesus? Do you know what? I think, I don't, I don't think the miraculous sustains. I don't think, I don't think Peter went to the cross upside down because he saw Jesus do some magic stuff. Peter didn't give up his life. Peter didn't go to the cross upside down and die like that because he saw Jesus break some bread and feed it to a few people. Because if we're totally honest, we'd see that and then we'd say, well, do another one. Let's see another one. Feed 10 this time. Feed 20. Let's see a bigger miracle. Let's see something more exciting. Let's see something. Now do this one. Now do that one. I don't think, I think human nature is we're never satisfied like that. So I don't think, these men were following a religion or a, a, a magician. 
or a miracle worker. They followed Jesus because something deep in who he was as a man spoke to them. What do you think? Son of God, of course. But Jesus didn't turn on a magnet. He didn't like he didn't wave his hand across their eyes like I I am the Messiah you've been looking for. Follow me like like the Star Wars thing. These men were no fools. Jesus didn't brainwash them. They followed him because they saw something profound about who he was in his life. And it, I don't think it was only the miracles, the healing. I think they saw something profound. And Morrow's saying that men follow men. Every man at his core is a hero worshipper. And you are his God hero. A man walks into church searching for a leader he can look up to and respect. He wants a father who will instruct, encourage and guide him. He seeks a man who is strong enough to confront him with the truth, with the truth in love. Here's a terrifying part. If a man loves his pastor, he is crazy about his church. But if he dislikes the pastor, he is unhappy with his church and nothing else seems to matter much. I think that's amazing. He's, a man seeks a man who is strong enough to confront him with the truth in love. I've seen that time and time again. Men have responded with absolute loyalty, commitment, drive, focus, when they've been confronted with the truth. When they turn around and say, mate, you're out of order here. And I'm telling you now, as a brother, as a mate, as your leader, as your boss, as your pastor, you're out of line. Let's get your life back on the, on the right path. And I'm not saying every bloke says, oh, cheers for that. But my experience has been, it is life-changing for those guys and creates a stronger bond of loyalty, commitment, authenticity, integrity. It's getting hot in my office. I'm getting a bit hot on this one. Men want a pastor who's a regular guy who talks honesty from the front. Bug, bug just jumped into my book flying in men like pastors who have some of the trappings of manhood being honest showing <laughs> that you're one of them deep down you're not you don't like wake up in your clergy outfit and go to bed in your clergy outfit and nothing in between you're a normal person avoid preacher speak learn to love the men in your communities uh, gather stories for men Gather visuals. When you teach men, use story. Keep it short. Include humour and laughter. Start with real life. Do something unexpected. Make it challenging. Emphasise strength more than weakness. Use masculine imagery and language. Start and end on time. Teach by personal experience. Stir the pot. Don't be, don't be afraid to stir the pot. Issue a clear call to action. I mean, this is spot on. If, if you didn't like this book, the uh, David Morrow one. Go and get it and have another read. Get it out of your cupboard. Because, Stephen, we talk about loads of this stuff. And if you ever come to the gathering, you will see this in action. And we see men give their lives to Jesus. We see men recommit to Jesus. We call out the truth. We speak it without a varnish. And we just live our lives. And we say, look, we're Christians. We're following Jesus. We love him. We're not perfect blokes. Do you want to be part of that? And men do want to be part of that. And it is life-changing. Anyway, I have waffled on loads. Oof, that has been a big podcast, 40 minutes special. Well, I have missed me, mate, Beachy. I know you lot probably have as well. I'm hoping 
if I can't meet up with Beachy in the next couple of weeks, there'll be another one of these from me, um, and then we'll be back in business because we are doing the grand tour. 16th of September, Carl and I are on the road from Edinburgh down to Essex. We thought we'd end in Essex. We are going all over the country, cities, towns, villages, uh, and we're going to be live streaming this stuff. There'll be a YouTube video every night. There'll be a podcast that comes out from it, a big one. We are going around capturing the stories of men on the ground, just hearing what God's doing, being encouraged by men on the ground, living their lives. Um, so yeah, that's happening, 16th of September. So keep an eye on social media. You're invited to take part in that, guys. <coughs> that is it from me. Thank you for tuning in to the CVM podcast. Well, the Code Life podcast with me, Nathan Blackaby, and my great mate, Carl Beach. See you next time.